Hello and welcome to Hacked in the Dark, the premier podcast for Forge in the Dark games and their designers. My name's Mark Cleveland, and I'm joined today by the author of Neon Black, who's returning to talk about their solo RPG, A Torch in the Dark, and how it handles the conversation, which should be interesting, considering there's only one player. Without any further ado, would you please introduce yourself to those of our audience who don't already know who you are? Hi, I'm Michael. My pronouns are he, him. I think this is my second time on the show. Yeah, the first time for this game, though, uh, A Torch in the Dark. Yeah. And some of our listeners have not heard that. So let's go ahead and cover your origin story a little bit again. And then we'll get into what led you to this design. Yeah, so like I got into RPGs kind of a little bit later in my life than most people. Like a lot of people tend to start when they're, you know, teens. But I started with like fourth edition D&D. I was well into my 20s. And I ran a campaign that lasted for about seven years. Yeah, it was massive with like, I don't know, overall like two dozen player characters kind of coming and going through that campaign. I had like two groups running in the same world. Everyone had a great time. And then after that, I played a little bit of 5th edition, ran some games, played in some games. Then I found indie RPGs through, like, Fiasco and Microscope and, like, Dungeon World and eventually Blades of the Dark, and I have never looked back. (laughs) Ah, yes, okay, okay. It's making sense now. Quick transition from lots of dungeon-delving-type games to Blades in the Dark means... You kind of miss that. <laughs> and so it makes a lot of sense why you would be working on uh, a game like this even a couple years ago uh, when you first released A Torch in the Dark. <laughs> how many games are you working on right now? <laughs> like how many open projects are we talking about? <laughs> let, me, let me pull up the Trello board. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what? More than, more than you know offhand? No. One, two, three, four, five... I need another uh, drink. Hold on. Six? Yeah, like six that are like... That's okay. Five that have at least a prototype finished. A six, if you count. One that is like mostly just at the ideation stage right now. Uh, I'm going to pop one for you. you know? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know what I would do with that many projects at once, but uh, you are definitely a madman. Well, uh, I mean, call you Mad Scientist Michael from now on. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with it. Keep in mind, like this, this is basically my job right now. Like I'm, I'm doing this for a living. So you know, if you're, if you're like a hobbyist, or, like doing this on the side out there, and like think you should have more projects in the go, don't. <laughs> you don't have to. But like this is, this is kind of my nine to five these days. So I have, I am working with a lot of people on a lot of exciting things. So I'm happy about it. I think you're just super blessed and you also have the time, you know, you have all these great creators. Yeah. I guess that leads me to the next part. You know, the thing that I told you that we were going to talk about before, this is where we talk about the conversation in a solo RPG and how Blades in the Dark informs that, you know, being as how it's usually a group based kind of game, you know? Yeah, totally. Like, I think I think I found Blades through... I can't remember exactly, but I, I remember, like, hearing about it through a couple of different places and eventually picked it up. And the first time I played through it was actually by myself. Like, I made a crew, I built some characters, because at the time, 
I wasn't I didn't have like a regular gaming group, I didn't have anyone to play with. Plus all the people I used to play with were all just playing D and D, so I didn't feel like I had anywhere to like bring it to, right? Like no one was really into indie games at the time. Oh sure, right. The indie movement didn't really kinda of kick off until I think really after Apocalypse World sort of broke through the consciousness site. Yeah, and mostly like just among my friends group, like not a lot of people played those sorts of games. It was kinda of like D and D or like vampire and that was it like no one was really interested in indie stuff yeah i definitely agree with that and uh, i felt that maybe you can share this experience as well maybe you had this as well where you were creating content your players were eating it up but then you know you felt limited a little bit by the systems and how you how you could express that oh god yes like and i didn't i didn't realize <laughs> like how bad it was until I started seeing how other systems are doing it, right? Like I didn't realize that, oh, I I don't have to do all this prep. I don't have to be the source of narrative authority. Like all these moments when I'm 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 straight up just like begging my player characters to come up with content on their own to inject into the story. Like there are systems that facilitate that way better than Dungeons and Dragons does. Like, as, as a way of telling stories, I think D&D has really set up a lot of RPG players on the wrong foot. Yeah, who knew they could reward the roleplay directly? <laughs> right? And even, like, in terms of, like, like, narrative authority and uneven, like, amount of work the GM has to do to prep, the ways that, like, players other than the GM are very limited in how they can affect the lore of the world, the really poor resolution system where the D20 might as well not have most of the numbers on the dice because most of those numbers don't really matter. <laughs> like, it's a pass-fail system, right? So, oh, like... yeah. Well, yeah, not only that, there's just a lot of swing to that die, which some people exactly, love. Exactly, yeah. Uh, you know. But it does lead to these weird situations where, like, the wizard outpushed the door open when the fighter was just leaning with 300 pounds of strength behind, you know? Yeah. But the frail wizard's now opening it, you know? Right? And so, like, it doesn't really matter what the tone of your game is because of that very swingy pass-fail system. It almost always devolves into a comedy of errors at some point, right? Yeah, I guess one of the things that wasn't apparent back then was the the rules were leading us towards a conclusion that it was a failure on the character's part. And when we could have said, something unexpected came along, you know, while the barbarian was trying to shove that door open, you know, rocks fell on them, didn't kill them, hopefully, (laughs) but, you know, rocks fell and the door didn't open and now they're hurt or something, you know, but they can try again and... You know, there's a lot of ways that now I feel more equipped to deal with that game. And I think that had a lot to do with my early experiences with Blades in the Dark. Reading it alone, uh, I, I think you have something to talk about in that regard. Uh, we were talking a little bit about this before the show. How did you first come to experience Blades in the Dark? Yeah, so that was, I actually just played it by myself. So, yeah. Yep. A, I was like really just depressed and burnt out on a lot of stuff, so I didn't really want to interact with people. I just needed something for myself. And part of it was like, yeah, I wasn't quite sure if anyone would be into it. But yeah, I made like a crew of cultists and I just, I kept this uh, notebook with all like what happened each session and all the clocks as they updated. And I printed out some character sheets and yeah, like every other evening I just sit down for an hour or two and play it by myself and see how things played out. And it was like one of the most 
narratively rewarding experiences of my life. I love this. I love this, uh, what you're saying right now. You know, the initial experience for me was, was a little bit of back and forth, you know, of, well, if this tough situation came along like it did in the last game, how would I do it now? Oh, I'd roll this and then this would happen. You know, was some of that happening? Yeah, like it was the way the system works with like the complications and, you know, how most of your roles are going to be, you know, in that four or five range. There is always going to be some kind of narrative complication. And the way the Blades is designed with the different consequences you can have, it doesn't really matter what your characters are doing. They're going to start affecting the larger world and creating problems for themselves. And so, you know, at the end of that first session, the ball is already rolling. Like, you already kind of have an idea of like, oh, like, we fucked with this faction, so they're probably going to mess with us. <laughs> or like, there, I made this devil's bargain to, you know, promise, you know, this character's earliest memories to this old Scovlin god that is like the personification of nothingness. And so that's going to be a whole thing. Yeah. And like, I, my background is like in creative writing, like I love telling stories. And so it just felt like such a great vehicle for... Uh, like solving the problem of a blank page was like as long as you have characters, as long as you make like a couple rolls, the ball gets rolling. Like those consequences, those complications, the harm, the stress, the trauma, it is going to change the characters and the world around them. And as long as you just keep following those threads, you're you're either never going to stop, or it's going to stop when all the characters die. <laughs> yeah. So what's really interesting how a conversation can begin from the outset, even when you're alone with a book. Let's talk about your game and the way that that's happening. Like, first off, the elevator pitch for your game, for those who, I guess, couldn't guess it, and what sets that apart from others like it. Yeah, so uh, A Torch in the Dark is a solo dungeon-crawling game. The premise is that, I, like, after a socialist medieval revolution, you are playing a lone dungeon delver who is trying to reclaim wealth from... Uh, all the entombed undead nobility who have been buried with all their treasures and coins and stuff like that. And like, the premise is that like the uh, socialist revolution happened, overthrew the emperor, uh, but the emperor with his last dying breath like cursed the land. And so all these you know, previously dead nobles and kings and princes have risen from their graves. And so your your purpose is twofold to try to like end this curse by killing all the undead and also try to reclaim all the buried wealth they wanted to die with. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, the uh, the undead servants from long ago are going to rise up to defy you. Uh, that's excellent. Uh, what a great premise, you know. It it sort of evokes to me when I look at the 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 names in in the text too. There's like an ed Edward or something, Edgar. <laughs> you know, some very hoity-toity name for one of the nobility. Oh yeah, like I spent a lot of time on like uh, medieval name generators to get a lot of names for these people to make them seem like yeah, there's like Allard Hund and Lord Admiral Geoffrey <laughs> Westisle, Lord Commander <laughs> Sigurd Bane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. So some of the inspirations for this, I'm already thinking about uh, some of the old like vampire books, you know, that I read as as a youth or something. Um, does that any of that 
have to do with what you're drawing upon? I can see the connection you're making. Yeah, no, for me, it was like, so at that point in my life, I was playing a lot of like Darkest Dungeon by Red Hook Studios, which is all you know, very grim, dark people going into tombs and most likely dying. Oh, yeah. And there's an old person involved in that as well. Yeah, and like a curse and stuff like that, yeah. And like lots of like debauchery, which is definitely an influence. There's also like some other solo RPGs like Dungeon Solitaire by Matthew Lowe's, which is a great game where you can just play with a deck of playing cards or tarot cards that kind of mimics the dungeon run. Ooh. Yeah, if, if folks are interested in stuff like that, uh, Dungeon Solitaire Labyrinth of Souls, I think is the full name, you can find it on DriveThruRPG. Definitely worth your while. I think it's a great game. I was also influenced by Thousand-Year-Old Vampire by Tim Hutchings, which is more like a, a journaling game where you play a very old vampire and how it kind of like your memories define you and you like lose them as you get older and older and the world changes around you. It's an absolutely beautiful book. And also at the time I was like, so the first version of this game came out in March 2020, right around when the kind of pen- pandemic was really kicking into full swing. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, that was the tail end, because I was about to get laid off from that job. I had worked for about two years in a restaurant. And I'd worked, you know, other customer service jobs before. I, you know, have an education in philosophy and religious studies, so that really primed me for a life of customer service jobs. But yeah, I was working a uniquely terrible job and was becoming more and more, like, class conscious and like realizing part of the reason why I didn't like this job was because I could see very clearly how everyone in front and back of house was doing all this work and had all these skills and was generating all this profit for the owner who had none of those skills, but he got to keep all the money and decide how much of it we got to keep. And it was never a lot. The tips were shit. The customers were mostly awful, and we were all being paid different rates, and we were encouraged not to tell each other that until we all kind of found out separately. Oh, spicy. Yeah. Well, that's actually pretty common, right? Like, to keep your wages secret. Like, in corporate environments, they do that, but... They do, and it's because, you know, they want to pay some people less than others for very arbitrary reasons. And yeah, and also like with the pandemic kicking off, a lot of politicians and rich people were kind of being very mask off about what they wanted out of people to get back to work and generate revenue and capital for them, even though they weren't the ones doing the jobs that were incredibly dangerous all of a sudden. Oh gosh, yeah, I guess this is sort of the onus for your own little personal socialist revolution going on. Oh yeah, like there's there's a definite trend in my work uh, throughout the last like year, year and a half or so of like, like I released this I've been working on Neon Black, which is like a very anti-capitalist uh, cyberpunk game. I released Nasty, Brutish, and Long, which is all about revolution and class struggle. So yeah, like I am permanently changed <laughs> I think on Twitter I said a little while ago, like, I have one favorite note and I play it all the damn time. And it's, you know, must, must crush capitalism. Ah, so your game's really about dungeon delving, but also revolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is not your typical dungeon delve so much. <laughs> yeah, because, like, that's one of the things that I... Like, it took me a while to get there. Like, the first version was much more pure dungeon delve It didn't have a whole lot of flavor to it. 
Uh, you're mostly just like rolling to generate random encounters and imagining what those counters would be. And then your action roll would kind of determine any complications along the way. But as I revised it through the year, I started to inject all this the story about, you know, a nobility who are so debauched they are, you know, summoning demons and doing dark magics to, to satisfy themselves. And a revolution that's going to try to, to quash that, but has to deal with all this diabolism that's been left in their wake and this death curse and all that. Well, now, so this is pretty interesting to me, uh, this other side of the game. Is there a revolution generator of sorts in here? Oh, there isn't. Uh, You do get to make your character, so that can kind of, like, color how, you know, they are related to the revolution. Like, it could be, like, a simple watchmaker, or it could be, you know, a former knight, or... Oh, okay. No, No, I meant, so I know that there is a built-in revolution in your game. I'm wondering if there is uh, perhaps some sort of a generator for the events that it would occur as you're dungeon delving that kind of portray that revolution around you. Right, yeah. So in A Torch in the Dark, you use a deck of cards to generate random encounters. Mm. Yeah, so basically, as you play the game, you make a character, you start delving, and there are nine dungeons you progress through sequentially. So you start the first one, you end the last one. And the book contains a uh, delving guide. It's kind of like a reference for like what each card represents. So in the first dungeon, you'll turn over a card, and it'll be like the, the seven of clubs. That'll be like, oh, there's like a, a blocked door in your way that you have to force open. But in the next dungeon, that card will re- represent something else entirely, and it kind of increases in difficulty as the game progresses. So I basically I wrote whatever 52 times 9 is prompts <laughs> to get you through each of the dungeons, which I would not recommend and I will not be doing again because <laughs> that's an awful lot of work. A healthy book of possibilities, for sure. I'd say there's no shortage of variety. I think uh, my first three pulls, I got, I got a blocked door, which I opened no problem. Uh, then I got moaning, groaning, like zombies, you know, some, some sort of minion-type creatures I'm, I, I, I kind of took them as uh, that were coming at me, and they were coming in a drove. Then I pulled a jack, which I guess the face cards are all special. <laughs> and I went, ooh, oh, I probably get a treasure. And as I read it, my, my glee turned to dismay as I realized I was now facing off with, like, the, the prince of the crypt or whatever. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, each of the face cards are unique events. So if you come across those, most of the time they will give you treasure, but you have to risk it, which is basically what, how the game like, calls you to make an action roll. And then you get to build a pool based on your skills and items and roll to see how well you do. And then you'll get treasures, which will let you uh, cash those in for downtime actions. You can replenish your stress and corruption items when you come out. Yeah, if you have to go through that dungeon again, you don't encounter those unique events. So basically Mm -hmm. you're trying to... It's like a risk-reward system where you want to get through the dungeon as fast as possible. We also want treasures so that you can replenish your stats so that when you go through again, you have a better chance of survival. Yeah, that's what I wondered about it. It seemed like... This is like a roguelike element that we see in video games now where, yeah, you beat, like, maybe you beat the first mini-boss and then you, you perish later and then when they start you over, 
they give you an item that kind of makes it easy to beat the mini boss or they give you something to kind of like bypass it like a tunnel you know some route so this is that right this is that that sort of thing persistent gameplay yeah for sure there's definitely some some roguelike elements in here it's not uncommon for at least in my playtesting for my characters to die in the first couple of dungeons but yeah, it is, is kind of built with mechanics in mind that even death isn't necessarily a hindrance. There's a way for you to be resurrected, but you have to permanently mark corruption on your character. So it's harder and harder for them to succeed as the game goes on, but that's kind of offset by the fact you're getting more treasures, and you're getting more skills. So Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about the corruption, right? So I got beaten by that. I got pretty corrupted. <laughs> I decided to leave. <laughs> yeah, so corruption is one of the consequences uh, that you get when you're making action rolls. It's a little bit like stress, so you mark it as a similar to stress. You have a certain amount on a track, and it kind of represents you being corrupted by you know self-doubt or you know, the demonic energies, the curse that is throughout Kindberg, the the city that the game takes place in. And if you if your corruption track fills, you die. Mm-hmm. And there are also encounters in each deck. You play with the jokers in the deck, and the jokers are always demons. And demons don't give you any treasure. They are a difficult encounter because you have to risk it three times, so even if you want to run away from them, it's going to take you at least three action rolls to do so. And if you have any corruption marked on your character, you lose one dice for each corruption because the demon is stronger against you. Oh, yeah, I saw I saw that. Uh, luckily, I didn't pull the Joker. I didn't feel ready after the Jack beat me, beat me in a submission pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I felt like ready to go back in, though. The corruption didn't feel that bad, but I think that's because I didn't get penalized for it yet. <laughs> I missed that part about the, you know, about that hurting me in the uh, devil encounter. Yeah, and I think that's something that I wanted to keep from Blades, that I push your luck sort of thing with every score. Like, oh, I don't have that much stress going into this. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And then suddenly you're not fine, and you're rolling resistance rolls, and everything's going sideways. That's a great way to talk about the next point that I have in mind. So the subject that I want to talk about is the conversation and where that's happening in a solo game. And, you know... Usually this is happening between players as well as, you know, the art, like I just said earlier on. I think there's a different discussion happening here, right? Because of some of the random elements mixed with, you know, the fact that this is not really going to involve other players necessarily. Tell me more about Torch in the Dark and what sort of conversation the rules are having with the players. Yeah, so there's kind of... There's different conversations happening, I think. There's, like, the rules that are talking to the player and letting them know what is possible. And then there's, like, the, the fictional space of, like, what is, what is the, the world saying to the player, what the player can expect to happen. And then there's kind of, like, the conversation you have with yourself where you're like, okay, you're imagining things happening in your mind. Imagine what sort of character this person is as they take conditions and learn new skills, how they grow and change, and like what are they willing to put up with, and what does their life look like versus like what you as the player you know want out of the game, right? Like maybe you want to push past the demon to get to the more treasures, or maybe you look at your character and be like, well, they're good at running away, so I don't think they would do that. <laughs> Sure, yeah. This is uh, really interesting to me, the 
idea that the discussion between the players can be replaced sort of with these other elements and the rules are saying something to the player right obviously it told me that the first challenge i was going to face would be it could have been the jack which was the prince or whatever it could have been the the three which i think was a door uh, that was locked you know and it's so there's a lot of like you don't know what's going to come up next that's pretty different in a way because you're playing by yourself <laughs> you know it's like it's like you didn't have to randomly create the the score but now that you're on the score and you michael through your work you've you know you, through torch in the dark you've you've led us to the first challenge but now we don't know what that first challenge is really going to be and so we we get this uh different kind of space of we could lay the cards out on the table and like have our darkest dungeon sort of thing going on right <laughs> mm -hmm. you know it's just track through the rooms and keep track of okay i pulled that card first and that card first and that card etc yeah this is uh this is really interesting to me that you could create your own little map i guess to tell to tell the story you can even just take a picture of it and then look it up later and go oh yeah i remember what happened there as i pulled this card and then that card you know what do you think that your game is really saying with all of this uh is it saying that there's hope is it saying that there's it's just random the world's gonna destroy them what, what, what are you <laughs> saying with your game oh uh, boy it'll change based on the day you find me uh, <laughs> but <laughs> or what they pull <laughs> yeah. yeah i think what the torch of the dark is saying through the rules is basically like it is trying to guide you through the process so like a game like Dungeon Solitaire that I mentioned earlier is a game where you basically just flip the cards over and that is your dungeon run. It's completely random. It's a lot more lethal, so you repeat runs all the time. You could die on like the second or third card pretty easily in that game. And I have several times because I love playing it. I played it a bunch. But for Torch in the Dark, I wanted there to be more of a narrative layer, which is why I made like the the dungeon guide and like how each card represents a different thing. And so what I wanted to be was like a curated experience where it's always obvious to the player what they should be doing, what kinds of things they should be doing in the moment. So like some cards say you have to risk it, which means you have to make an action roll right now. Like there's a, there's a skeleton came out of the decaying wall, pounced on you, you have to get out of that situation. Others are like, you may do a roll. So like, okay, there's like... Um, a statue here in the tomb of the lord that's buried here and he had emeralds put in the eye sockets because he's that kind of asshole and so if you want to you can climb up and pry those out but that's going to be a risk roll so you have to decide if that's worth it or not so i was basically just trying to make it as obvious as i could in the in the in each encounter like what your options are and what's expected of you because in solo games you really run the risk of if you make it too general then players don't really know what they're supposed to do, or they don't really know what's possible, what's expected of them. And if you make it a little bit too granular, then it, you kind of remove the narrative element where it basically just feels like you're, you're playing a beat-em-up or something, like you're just getting through enemies for the sake of getting through enemies. There's no like real narrative layer there. Like, there's no like tension or reward Asian counter. Yeah, that's something I think that I picked up on as I was... <laughs> picking up blades for the first time some of the playtest documents once i got my hands on them i started to to do the, that that sort of thing that you were doing like playing on your own in a way and then i 
I realized that I, I didn't realize it then, but I realize it now that I was picking out situations where there was already an established narrative and I was reliving them through the lens of the game system so that I had context, right? I knew what I was going to do going into that and what, what kind of the impulses were for the characters and what sort of what could go wrong and all of that was already answered. Uh, I think that's an important point you brought up that this is really about solving a lot of that and being able to entertain yourself without it being like stale and you know expected right because you it's just you <laughs> yeah exactly you want it to be narratively satisfying but you also have to deliver those those necessary constraints that can help you tell a story right so like i will i will mention iron sworn here even though it's not a forge of the dark game it is oh, a powered by the mm. apocalypse game so it has the race and lineage but it is like it is right now like kind of one of the gold standards in solo RPGs because it really nails the limiting the space that the player can move in. That no matter what you do, there's going to be a move for it, and it's going to give you interesting results. It's like some of the other PBTA games, instead of like stats, you have moves. Like if you get into a fight, you do this move. If you want to find help in your community, you do this move. And that constrains play in such a way that it's easy to imagine yourself in the fiction. And then when you roll the dice, it gives you, like we were talking about earlier, like it's that rolling stone effect, where as soon as you start moving, you're making deals, you're making compromises, you're affecting factions, you're getting hurt. And so it kind of, no matter what you do, you are going to create complications and consequences that your characters are going to have to deal with as the game progresses. Yeah, the Iron Sworn is uh, certainly a... Uh, I want to say a landmark piece in solo tabletop games. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. The interesting thing is uh, this came out not too long before you finished your game, correct? So like Iron Sworn's got like a 2019 Any Award, I'm seeing. So it came out just shortly before. Uh, do you think that weighed in heavily on what you were working on? Were you already working on it at that point when you saw it? Probably, but I definitely, I wanted... A Torch in the Dark to be a lot more simple and a lot more based on the Forge of the Dark model. It's definitely, I, I'm I'm positive I had played Iron Sworn before. Okay, okay. But yeah, like I didn't I didn't imagine it being because Iron Sworn really does imagine like an open world, lots of different possibilities, lots of different stories you can tell. Whereas Torch in the Dark, I want it to be like, no, you are delving in a dungeon, you are getting treasures. Even like an older, like the first version, like treasures counted as XP, like how it was in like early versions of D and D. Like I want it to be able to have like that kind of a very old school dungeon crawly kind of feel to it. Which I totally love that. Yeah, I love that you you call back to the source materials that kind of got you inspired to the hobby. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just wanted to tell a much more contained, definitive story rather than having an open world because that's. Again, like the more open your setting is, the you have to do a lot more work to give the player the necessary tools to navigate that space. Like in Iron Sworn, you have a lot of moves you can make, and it's kind of necessitated by the fact that like the game never tells you explicitly what you're going to be encountering. It's always up to you. It kind of gives you some examples of like monsters and stuff like that, but like 
it is basically hold, handing you all the narrative tools and letting you get into trouble with them, whereas Torch in the Dark is more like, this is the situation, there's revolution, there's demons and undead everywhere, if you don't get money, you're going to die, so here you go. <laughs> yeah, how bleak and lovable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's an interesting point. The way that this is uh, sort of leading the player is a benefit. I mean, you have this wide landscape of possibility when you throw down a game like Ironsworn, which can be a, both a benefit and a curse, like you're saying. So I think you're telling a more focused story here than a game like that. So I, I, I admire that about you, you know, in this work. Do you think the game helps by providing tools for the player to kind of negotiate with themselves as far as what will go wrong? Like, how do we decide what goes wrong when we roll the 4-5 or, or the 1-3? to three? Yeah, so the game has specific consequences you can pick from, uh, similar to Blades of the Dark. Yeah, like, I know how I decided. Like, I picked Corruption, because I was like, that exactly. sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, you can mark Corruption, uh, you can mark Stress, you can take Condition, which is this game's original harm, which can be kind of anything that you think fits in the moment, like stabbed or, I don't know, exhausted, bruised, broken bones, whatever you want. And you can mark as many conditions as you have skills. You start with three skills, you get more as you fail rolls. But if you fail a roll, your options of what consequences you can pick are much more limited. You have to pick the more punishing ones. So you have to do a condition or you have to... Uh, lose an item, or if you're, you found a companion in the dungeon, you have to harm them, and they can only take two harm before they perish. It is constraining the player to certain options, and also kind of, I wanted to try to encourage some failure, because the only way you get XP in a Torch in the Dark is if you fail rolls. And you're not going to fail very many rolls if you're rolling a lot of dice, so you're kind of encouraged to make your skills be very you know, specific so you know when they're going to help you. Because um, that's how you build your die pool to make an action roll. You look at your skills and your items and you get one die for each of those that could help you. And so you want to have a diverse set of skills that could help you through lots of different sorts of encounters. But if they are, if you're trying to apply them too many times, the thing like, oh, I'm brawling, that means it helps me with, you know, this trap and this skeleton and this door, you're not going to fail very often, which means you're not going to get more skills, which means you can't mark more conditions, which means you're going to die a lot sooner. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's interesting. The, uh, the way that this is really driving you to try things that you're not good at, the way to, to learn new things is to try things you're not skilled at in other words so you roll less dice and you fail more often <laughs> yeah which is kind of very, very realistic in a way you know it's, it resonates with me <laughs> and how i learn things yeah no totally it took me a while to get to get comfortable with that idea of, of failing over and over again but um yeah this is kind of like the thing i really like in the conversation that happens in blades in the dark where you know the player gets to pick what action they use Right? It doesn't matter like what's happening. You get to say if you're skirmishing or if you're finessing or if that. And then the GM gets to say where your position of effect is, right? And that's that kind of negotiation is something I'm a huge, huge fan of and something I I am often, you know, proselytizing about and the like 
you know, the GM shouldn't call for an action. That's not how this is supposed to work. Like the GM might have a good idea of what action is appropriate, but there is a there is a key narrative push and pull that is happening in Blades in the Dark where it wants to slow down and say, okay, what exactly is happening here? What exactly are the stakes? Is everyone comfortable with that? And then the player can kind of augment that by spending stress or using items. But at the end of the day, it is it is a it is a slow game that wants you to consider these things and have like a conversation like we've been talking about. And so that was kind of I don't know if I emulated that well in a torch in the dark, but it's definitely something that's on my mind of like I like how the different position effects constrain what is possible and make things more dire or less dire depending on the situation. And like kind of like the skills you have access to and the items you have access to and you pick as the game progresses kind of determine like which situations are going to be more or less dire for your character. Because if you're not a fighter, if you instead decide to be, you know, an acrobatic thief, every time there's a fight, the stakes suddenly get higher because you're going to have less dice to access in that situation. Yeah, I, I get that. The way this ties in with the skill system in your game is actually... Like, this this could potentially work in Blades, but one of the things that Blades does is encourages you to go for the desperate thing to do the most and get rewarded for that. And this would kind of, like, you know, befuddle this a little bit. But because you have the skills being chosen based off of when you fail, right? If you fail enough times, that's when you're going to get the thing. So, like, it, it seems to make sense to me that these systems, you know, they're more finely tuned than than I perhaps realized when I first looked at it. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't don't get too big headed. You got another game to write, don't you? You working on something new? <laughs> I've got several games to write, actually. So yeah, I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't talk. Yeah. So I want to thank you for joining me today. We we kind of running short on time uh, because we, I mean, we could talk about this stuff all day, but there's like there always feels like there's something left over for us to talk about. And I think that's a good place to be when we, we get towards the end of these episodes. You know, it's like we got another reason to bring you back. <laughs> totally. Happy to come back, too. As, as we heard, I have lots of projects on the go. So. Yeah. If our listeners want to learn more about you and your games, where should they go? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at NotWritingGames. I actually just recently changed it. Uh, from last time I was on, so yeah, not writing games on Twitter, and you can find my games on DriveThruRPG by looking for not writing games and itch at uh, notwriting.itch.io. Ooh, brand solidarity right there. Yeah, you got all the screen names across the different services. Consolidating my brand. <laughs> I love it. That actually reminds me of something I want to announce for the channel. We are actually super close to a milestone. We have 450 unique listeners per episode right now. And if we hit 500, I think that would call for a celebration. We could justify additional content. Maybe the talk show that I want to do with uh, players from the actual play shows that we're doing. If you've made it this far, help us reach our goal by hitting the share button to spread the good news, so to speak. And now I want to hear uh, about the rest of your cool stuff, Mike, because <laughs> I know there's a lot. Yeah, so uh, myself and a bunch of other designers from the Forge and Dark community got together 
uh, for ZineQuest earlier this year, and we put together a game called External Containment Bureau, and is a game of paranormal investigation based on the Forge of the Dark Engine, and it is going to be out soon. Yay! I know <laughs> Eli, the project manager, will, will kill me if I put a specific date on it, but I'm just going to say very soon. <laughs> And, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Don't commit. <laughs> um, but if you want to pre-order the digital version, you can search for External Containment Bureau on itch.io, or you can go to uh, mythicgazetteer.itch.io slash external containment bureau, and you can find it there. Um, we will put that link down below as well so you can find it. Yes, thank you. And like I said, if you want to follow... The work I'm doing, you can do so on Twitter at OutWritingGames. Uh, if you want to support my work and get like special behind-the-scenes access and like access to prototypes of stuff and like unreleased games, uh, you can go to Patreon.com/NotWriting. Um, you can also get like a bunch of my games for like five or ten bucks all at once, which is probably the best way to do it. Oh, you got a bundle over there. Yeah, uh, and yeah, like I like I was mentioning, I'm working on a lot of projects. I am I'm trying to make this a full time thing. So if you're looking for if you're looking for someone to consult your game, do some creative writing, design. I love working with Forge of the Dark designers. So yeah, shoot me an email, Michael at notwriting.net. I can recommend them for this. I recently had them do a little bit of creative writing slash consult type work. I think that about wraps up this episode of Hacked in the Dark the podcast network where we feature Forged in the Dark Games and their designers with a new topic every episode. I'm Mark Cleveland, and remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as hacks in the dark. (laughs) 